hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've turned into Rediscovering New York. In my day job, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love this city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing city. On many shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians, and artists. Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In prior episodes, we've covered things like a history of U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York. We've talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, which was a hotbed of the women's suffrage movement in the late 19th century. We've covered the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York. We had some special episodes during Stonewall 50 about the city's LGBT history. And we've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. Uh, actually, one of our guests might have something to say about that tonight. Uh, and I've even hosted shows on the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate shows, obviously. In the future, we might journey to some of the city's parks or the subway or the city in an age of a particular social or political movement. After each broadcast, you can listen to us on podcasts. We're on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we have a special show. We're going to focus on two institutions that are in particular neighborhoods, uh, on museums, but they're museums that many of our listeners haven't been to, and one or both of them, some of our listeners may not even have heard of. We're going to be speaking with the assistant director at the Museum of the City of New York and also the director of the Brooklyn Children's Museum. Our first guest is Sarah Henry. She's the deputy director. I'm sorry, I said assistant. That was the wrong title, Sarah. Sarah is the deputy director and the chief curator at the Museum of the City of New York, where she has served since 2001. She has led the curatorial team for many critically acclaimed exhibitions, over 200 to date, including the museum's award-winning three-gallery signature exhibition, New York at its Core, that was in 2016. Dr. Henry is the recipient of the Manhattan Borough President's History Visionary Award, which we're going to ask her about. She's a member of the New York Academy of History and serves on the board of the International Council of Museums Committee on the Collections and Activities of Museums of Cities. Uh, for anyone interested in the acronym, that's KAMOC, C-A-M-O-C. Can you say that in one breath? It's my pleasure to welcome Sarah Henry to Rediscovering New York. Thanks so much for having me. I think we have a lot in common. We do. I studied history, too, but uh, I never took it up professionally, just do it as a side thing from time mm-hmm. to time. Um, are you originally from New York, Sarah? I am. I am born and bred, grew up in Greenwich Village. I'm actually born to two parents, both born in New York. They're Brooklynites, though. Ah, yeah. So they they left our borough, unlike uh, my and uh, our second guest parents who didn't evacuate, <laughs> decided well, to stay. Yeah, they grew up in New York in a time when lots of people had fled Manhattan to go to Brooklyn to find uh, more space and and uh, homes they could own. And then by the nineteen fifties and sixties, uh, a lot of Manhattan was emptying out for various reasons and new opportunities. They kind of did the reverse. The reverse migration. They came back from from Brooklyn to Manhattan to make their lives as artists. And I was going to say the village in the 50s was a very exciting place. It, uh, it was. And in the 50s, they actually lived in more the Flatiron District in Chelsea, which was also an exciting place. Lots of not just visual artists, but poets, choreographers, musicians. It was a, There was this Chelsea vibe that uh, the Chelsea ethos was called. When did they move from the Flatiron District to, to the slash Chelsea to uh, to the West Village? In 1965. Uh-huh. And uh, so that's where I grew up. Uh, I was born living in Chelsea, went south to the village. And it was a great place to grow up and a place steeped in history. Yes, uh, incredibly. We, we've actually had a couple of shows. And we've had a show on the West Village, one on the Central Village. Uh, one of my guests was Bob Zadenberg, who uh, has been involved in village music for 60 years. And uh, we also had a show on uh, on the East Village. Well, I just have to jump in there because the Museum of the City of New York, we're going to talk about it later, has a show about the village, the village voice particularly. But we have a whole weekend of programming coming up right before Thanksgiving called The Vibe of the Village. And we can talk about that later. If you want to soak up some of the culture of the 50s, 60s, and 70s in, in the village, I've got some 
great events for you. Actually, a couple of weeks ago when I was at the opening, sort of uh, uh, press opening of um, the CIG exhibit, which we're also going to talk about, I sauntered into that exhibition with the photographs. And, you know, I couldn't stay that long, but I loved what I saw. And I said, I have to go back while, uh, while it's still up. It's a great, a great time travel opportunity. Let's talk about you, Sarah, and your work, not mm-hmm. just at the museum, but, but, your, but your career. How did you get into curatorial work? Well, I studied history. I studied history as an undergraduate. I got a PhD in history at Columbia. Uh, I went into academia, but I was always interested. In fact, I was motivated to study history in the first place by experiences at museums. There's something about museum that gives you the, the feeling of time travel, which I think is really an important role of history museums, to make people feel like the past is real, hmm. which it is. And walking tours do the same thing. People want to go to the place where history took place because they want to feel that actual vibrant connection to the people who came before. So I had that experience as a a child, going to the Museum of the City of New York. And after uh, And you couldn't leave. You walked in the door and that was it. That was pretty much it, since fourth grade. Like so many people who went there in fourth grade. Our second guest had a similar experience. We're going to talk to her about Mm -hmm. that uh, later on in the show. What was was your first position in, in... curatorial work? Well, I went from being a a history professor at Union College in Schenectady uh, to being the vice president for what was then called programs at the Museum of the City of New York, and that was in 2001. And that position was created in large part to bring together all of the programming, meaning exhibitions, public programs, uh, education programs, and collections at that time under one umbrella to plan for the move of the Museum of the City of New York that never occurred down to the Tweed Courthouse. So it was a a newly created position, and I've sort of evolved from there. So I jumped right into the thick of everything almost uh, 19 years ago. That's great. Let's talk about the history of the museum. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not one of the oldest museums in the city. Who was was Henry Collins Brown, and what was his vision? Sure. Well, it's not one of the oldest museums in the city, but it actually is in sort of the second wave. Um, The oldest museum is the New York Historical Society, founded in 1803. And... um, Henry Collins Brown was one of a group of people who were interested in creating an alternative kind of history museum separate from the New York Historical Society that would focus specifically on the five boroughs of New York. Some of them really felt there wasn't a place for them at the New York Historical Society, that it was too much of a closed club. And they were also um, interested, they were motivated by European city museums, particularly the Musée Carnivalet in Paris, and they wanted to think about how a museum could specifically turn its attention to the urban landscape. And they were very interested in how to educate, particularly the children of new arrivals in New York, about the city that they had come to. Because New York was really massively transformed by immigration in the generation leading up to the founding of the museum in 1923. Which would have been a different experience of when the New York Historical, of what led to the development of, or the opening of the Historical Society. Correct. I think there were really two impulses behind the Museum of the City of New York. One was uh, to inculcate new arrivals in the history of the museum. It was really part of a progressive movement to think about how you can acculturate, and they would have said assimilate. And this uh, would have been arrivals. right after the First World War, right. approximately. So 1923. Uh, but the other thing was that it was also a period of massive transformation, particularly in Manhattan. This is the period when big swaths of the old, often very gracious homes were being torn down and being replaced by by new corporate headquarters and, and so on. It's what the historian Max Page calls the creative destruction of Manhattan. And so there was a preservationist impulse there. They knew they couldn't save the the... The, the buildings and the homes, but they felt they could preserve the history that those homes represented and preserve some of the contents of those households so that the their forebears were not wiped away from the history of New York. So it was both sort of progressive and uh, um, uh, an effort at uplift of the new arrivals and also part of the preservation movement of the 1920s. Which uh, did not include a landmark law. In fact, a lot of the buildings in Midtown along Fifth Avenue, they, they, went, they were destroyed and, uh, like in that, during that time period. That, that's right. There was an early landmark kind of movement at that time. We actually did an exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York called Saving Place uh, about that. 
but the landmark law wasn't passed until the destruction of Penn Station in 1965. Mm. Um, the first location of the museum was Gracie Mansion. Mm -hmm. uh, how did the museum wind up on its present site and its present location? Right. Well, Gracie Mansion was city-owned property, and it was off. It was Parks Department land. This was before it was the official residence of the mayor of New York. And which started with Fiorello LaGuardia, I think, in the late thirties. He was in the first. Then. Yeah. Yes. Um, and um, it was part of the public-private partnership that was present from the beginning between the Museum of the City of New York and uh, the City of New York. We actually, and we'll talk about this later, I know, have an exhibition on view right now called Cultivating Culture about the 34 institutions that are, con constitute the cultural institutions group. So what we have in common is occupying city-owned buildings and city-owned land, but private nonprofits. And this very rich history of the city collaborating with privately uh, operated institutions to build up the cultural life of the city is a really important part of the history of our museum. So the Museum of the City of New York was at Gracie Mansion. Uh, the, um, the, the new chairman of the board, James Spire, was looking to, to professionalize the museum, to put it on a greater, um, uh, finance, more secure financial footing, to be able to tell bigger stories. And the museum struck a deal, again, with the Parks Department for a parcel of land between 103rd and 104th Street on Fifth Avenue, right across from Central Park, at the top of what we now call Museum Mile. Uh, and the deal was that the city would provide the land, but the museum had to raise the funds to build the building. And they had a very short window of time to raise $2 million. They got a little extension, but they eventually got there through big donors, the Rockefellers and others, but also small donors. People were sending in donations for a dollar to build the Museum wow. of the City of New York. Wow, how inspiring. It was. And it was built during the beginning of the Depression. Right, they broke ground in 1929. So Jimmy Walker <laughs> broke the ground, laid the cornerstone, uh, like, and it was opened to the public in 1932. They didn't complete the, the grandiose plan they had. They did, there were some parts of it left undeveloped. Uh, and that was, we imagine, was, was partly due to the economic downturn. But they did open in 1932 on the site that the Museum of the City of New York still occupies today, though we were able to do some of that expansion in the 21st century that they were not able to accomplish in the 1920s and 1930s. Mm. Well, we're going to take a break in a minute, and when we come back, we're going to talk about um, some of the exhibitions now and some of the important work that the museum does. But I do want to ask a question about the, the location of the museum. Is there anything special about the museum's present location that you feel enhances either the mission of the museum or the experience of visitors who come to, to visit? Well, we love that we sit at the juncture of three really vibrant neighborhoods, East Harlem, which we're proud to call our home, the Upper East Side, and Harlem. So we're, we're, by some calculations, right at the center of the island of Manhattan, if you think about how, how far Manhattan goes north, south, east, and west from us. So it's really a, really a, a central place. And, and literally Fifth Avenue at that point on the island almost is in the middle of the you know. Right. You island. don't think of it because we think of Central Park as being central, but actually cent Fifth Avenue is the central part of that. Uh, and um, the... There's tremendous diversity in our neighborhood, which we love. We have the beautiful conservatory gardens of Central Park right across the street. We have El Museo del Barrio, another member of the Cultural Institutions Group, directly across the street. And soon we'll have the Africa Center at the top of Museum Mile. So we really have this great upper Museum Mile cluster while being able to speak to an incredibly diverse and vibrant neighborhood that we're very proud to call our home. And the Afri uh, Museo del Barrio is at 104th Street, and the Africa Center is at 110th. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Sarah Henry, the Deputy Director of the Museum of the City of New York. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network, 
Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back with our first guest tonight, um, two museums that you, episode 43, two museums that you probably haven't been to yet, or some of our listeners are going to be going to the two museums we're covering tonight after they hear all about them. Uh, my first guest is Sarah Henry, the deputy director of the Museum of the City of New York and one of the city's real cultural gems. Um, Sarah, before we talk about recent and current exhibitions, um, let's talk about the museum's collection. What collections, what kind of things are in the collection? And, some, and what are some of the things that some of our listeners might go, oh, wow, I wouldn't have imagined that you have those things. Or right. that, that sound really cool. Well, we have a collection of an estimated 750,000 objects. So I'm not going to be able to name them all. Uh, but they range from fine art, so paintings, sculptures, a wonderful photography collection, which, by the way, you can see online over 200,000 images uh, at our collections portal, collections.mc. 200,000 images online at the online. museum. That's collections.mcny.org. Wow. So we definitely encourage people to explore that. Um, we have a, a vast costume collection uh, as well as a theatrical costume collection. So garments that people wore in New York and people that and costumes that people wore on stage. We have a, a decorative arts collection that includes furniture. So we have Alexander Hamilton's desk and we have a um, we have a suite of chairs that once belonged to Marie Antoinette that Gouverneur Morris acquired. So there's some really surprising things in there. Um, there's a theater collection that includes not only the costumes I mentioned before, but set models, designs, scripts, scores, props. So if you want to see the... Um, Snoopy's Bowl from your good man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> so not all of these things are on view. I think everybody should understand that any museum... Has that ever been on, on, in, in an exhibition before, Snoopy's Bowl? To, I'd <laughs> have to look that up, but we're thinking about an opportunity uh, for that. Uh, we, have, we have Mary Martin's Shadow from Peter Pan, as well as the Fairy Dust from Peter Pan. So there's a lot of great things in the theater collection. Uh, we have a toy collection that people, a lot of people know us for and a great marine collection. But one of the things I wanted to say was that this collection grew over a period of time, basically from the late 1920s to the present. We continue to add to it. And we're going to do, a, we're planning a recent acquisitions um, exhibition coming up in December and January called From, from Stuyvesant to Sid Vicious, Collecting ah. New York Stories. But... One of the things that I thought would interest you because of your interest in, in how real estate and, um, and history go together is that the foundational gift to our collection was an amazing gift from a man named J. Clarence Davies, who was a realtor and a real estate developer in the Bronx in the early 20th century. And he was an incredible collector of new, what he called New Yorkiana, or what we call. So thousands and thousands of books, prints, photographs, paintings. And he donated the, the whole collection to the museum with great fanfare in 1928. It was such a major moment. It was covered in the New York Times that this gift came over. And to this day, the J. Clarence Davies collection at the Museum of the City of New York helps us to tell the stories of New York in the 17th, 18th, and 19th, and early 20th centuries. And 
It's an amazing collection. But he was interested in that history because he was trying to sell people on the idea of buying real estate in New York. And he was collecting maps. He was interested in what had come before. Mm. And we actually profile him in, in our exhibition, New York at its core. So you can come to the museum and learn more about him. It's a, it's a really intriguing story. He's considered the king of the Bronx. And that's not a, uh, um, uh, an occasional exhibition. New York at its core is sort of a permanent exhibition. That's right. right. Yes. We opened it in 2016. So it's coming up on being three, year old, three years old in just a couple weeks. But it was the fulfillment of a decades, almost century-long dream of the Museum of the City of New York. And it's, it's something that other city museums around the world deliver to their visitors and our visitors expect when they come to something called the Museum of the City of New York that we would have an overview exhibition about the history of New York. But we went further than that. We've added the future also. Oh, and it's a large exhibition. It comprises three galleries in yeah. the museum, doesn't it? it? Wow. It's, the whole, it's the whole first floor. So when you enter the museum, you have a gallery on the early history up to 1898. And I know you know why we did 1898, but that's my <laughs> quiz for everybody. Uh, then a gallery goes to 1898 to 2012 that we call World City. And then we have a, our largest gallery at the museum is dedicated to the future. Let's talk about uh, other current exhibitions right now. Uh, what, tell us about Cultivating Culture. What, what inspired that and, and how did it come about? Cultivating Culture, 34 Institutions That Changed New York, is about the Cultural Institutions Group, which is something that a lot of New Yorkers have experienced without knowing it, which is that New York City has an unequaled public-private partnership between the city and, it's, and a group of cultural institutions, which, as I mentioned before, generally are private nonprofits that, oper that operate in, in city-owned buildings, and they get city operating support to operate and maintain their buildings. Not all the money comes from the city. The museums and other institutions like zoos, gardens, theaters, uh, cultural centers, they also have to raise money. But New York City spends more on culture than the National Endowment for the Arts nationwide. That's amazing. That's truly amazing that this city, which, uh, you know, <laughs> this amazing city, which we, us New York, we, uh, we New Yorkers think and know is at the center of the world, that our local government would spend more money on, on culture and arts than the National Endowment right. for the Arts. Right, more than any other city wow. in the country. <laughs> and a lot of institutions that we just take for granted are a natural part of our environment. And of course, they're there. They aren't just, of course, there. They were founded by visionaries and by activists and by philanthropists, and they've been maintained by uh, both their private boards and generous donors and the city for 150 years of history of this collaboration. And we actually, I'm going to give, give you a present, though, actually, because oh, you were going to wow. ask how many are there. So, yes, exactly. So I, what I'm handing you is a tote bag made. It's got hashtag cultivating culture. Uh, and it's got a list of all 34 institutions. And your task is to take the little Sharpie that's attached to it and visit, check them off as you visit them. So then you get to be a true New York aficionado if you visit all 34. And there are some really wonderful under-the-radar ones as well as some of the biggest institutions in the world. And, and all your listeners can come to the Museum of the City of New York and get theirs, too, if they want. So this is my gift to you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. I'm not going to read all the uh, museums on this, but uh, people can find out what all 34 institutions are on your website, mcny.org. Um, That's right. Cultivating culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm glad to say that I've been to a couple. I actually went to uh, an opera for on-site opera. Uh, the um, uh, director was a guest a couple of weeks ago on my opera show. Uh, saw an episode of Turn, a production of Turn of the Screw at Wave Hill. That oh, was really something. That's been amazing. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was really something. Right. And well. I've been to... More than I even thought I would have, but now I have my assignment. Now you have assignment. You have to check all of those off. But that's just one of the shows that we have at the museum. We have um, um, a major show opening in November that connects to the census, the 2020 census, called Who We Are, which looks at data about the city but through the eyes of artists. And uh, it asks the question, who we are, and says that that's to be found in the numbers. And uh, right now on view, we have the show about the Village Voice photographer, Fred McDara, who I mentioned before. Great and photographs. And I'm, I'm, um, I wasn't an, an, an adult in the earlier times when he was shooting, but I do remember New York in those days. It's an uh, amazing time travel opportunity and some really iconic photographs of you know, Bob Dylan, Jack Kerouac, and, and so on, um, Leroy Jones, slash Amiri Baraka, so many 
important artists, but also the, the political protests that came grew out of the village. And there's a separate section uh, related to the pride parades because McDara was the only professional photographer we know who was at Stonewall. So he documented that and we used that to connect them. And on the weekend before Thanksgiving, we're having a weekend-long celebration called The Vibe of the Village in which we're going to have panel discussions on the history of the Village Voice, both with, uh, with writers, former writers for the Village Voice and former photographers for the Village Voice. We're going to have an evening of music with David Amram and friends. So oh, he was there. Yeah. He was there back in the day, and he's still around. And we have a children's activities, family activities on Sunday, and coffee house on Friday night. So it's really cool. And then we're going to be... Can I come to some of them? You should come to all of it. Uh, I'm going to look for you. And then we're opening... In February, we're opening something we're really excited about, which is an exhibition about basketball in New York. Both the pro game, but also the high school and college games, which have an amazing history in New York City, and really importantly, the street game, the way that basketball is woven into the fabric of New York City. You also have an exhibition now called Urban... Indian, native New York now. We do. This is an exhibition that we opened in September, and it is uh, drawing attention to the large and diverse and incredibly creative Native American community in New York City. And uh, there are self-reported over 100,000 Native Americans living in New York City. That goes through the census. It's kind of a complicated thing to count, but it gives you an idea that about how large and diverse this community is. And often people are very surprised because they don't think of New York as being a place that's home to a lot of indigenous people. They think of places where there are sovereign tribes in the West or um, in other parts of the country that way. I gesture towards the Hudson River. Well, we have, yeah. we have sovereign tribes in upstate New York and even um, mm-hmm. uh, on, in the southern part of the state, we have the Shinnecocks. That's right. Long so Island. the closest ones are the, on, on Long Island, the Shinnecock. Uh, but the, there's a very special quality to the urban, um, urban Indian, as they claim that title, a population here, in part because everyone is, um, is on even ground in some way. Of course, we have the Lene Lenape people who have returned here. Uh, but every, it's a diasporic community, so people have come from all over the country for lots of different reasons. And the exhibition highlights uh, art by Native Americans in New York today, um, various kinds of organizations, activism that people are undertaking, and the various ways that they navigate their co- complex and often dual identity as both urbanites and pe- Native people with connections to uh, sovereign lands hmm. elsewhere. We could go on and talk for hours about your work at the museum. Mm-hmm. We have a couple of minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, one of the some of the more inspiring projects that you've worked on at the museum in the mm-hmm. past. Mm. Uh, there's so many. As you mentioned in the intro, I've worked on over 200 exhibitions, and it's a little bit like asking someone to choose their favorite child. But <laughs> I will say we we have um, we we had the great opportunity to work with the late Hillary Ballin of uh, Columbia and then NYU, who curated some of our most important temporary shows. One of them was The Greatest Grid, uh, about the Commissioner's Plan of 1811. And another one was uh, Robert Moses and the Modern City. So I know anybody who's interested in the built environment and urban development knows how important those two moments in New York City history was. The creation of the streets and avenues, the numbered streets and avenues that begin at was then North Street. Yes, House Street. Yep. And that was As, planned out more than 200 years ago, everybody. Right. In 1811, they laid out 155 streets north of the then northern edge of the city, anticipating an enormous population growth. Um, um, that actually sounds implausible to our ears, but there was that is literally what laid the framework for life in Manhattan and has created so much of its character. Well, New York has always been a visionary city, even at the time that it was founded by the Dutch, when New Amsterdam was founded. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't call us the Empire State for nothing. That's right. There's uh, a lot of ambition there, yes. And you can learn lots about it in New York at its core, which takes you from the Henry Hudson to the, and the Lenape to the present and future. Mm. 
Well, Sarah, thank you so much. Our first guest for this episode of Rediscovering New York has been Sarah Henry. Sarah is the deputy director and the chief curator at the Museum of the City of New York. You can find out more about the museum's exhibitions at www.mcny.org. We'll be back in a moment with our second guest at another very interesting museum, this one in the borough of Brooklyn. We will be back in a moment. Great. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back and you're back support for rediscovering new york comes from our sponsors the mark myman team mortgage strategist at freedom mortgage for assistance in any kind of residential mortgage mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735 and support also comes from the law offices of thomas siaka specializing in wills estate planning probate and inheritance litigation tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317 Our show is about New York and the myriad textures of this amazing city that we live in. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and like this show is also available on podcast. You can like us on Facebook. The page is Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on a mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though this is not a show about the real estate business in the city, I am a real estate agent in New York where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all your real estate needs. You can reach me at my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is the director of another museum that most of our listeners have not been to, not yet anyway, and it's in Brooklyn. It's the Brooklyn Children's Museum. Uh, Stephanie Hill Wilchfort is president and CEO of the museum. It's the world's first museum built especially for kids and one of the country's largest informal educators. It was founded in 1899. The Brooklyn Children's Museum has been a community anchor in Crown Heights for nearly 120 years and serves 285,000 children and caregivers annually. That's a lot of visitors. A Brooklyn native, Stephanie has worked in arts and culture for two decades. She joined the Brooklyn Children's Museum in February of 2015. Previously, Stephanie was vice president of development for the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, which I used to be a member of. Uh, Prior to the Tenement Museum, Stephanie was Assistant Vice President and Senior Project Director at Sesame Workshop, 
where she oversaw a variety of marketing, business development, and fundraising initiatives. She's also held senior roles at New York Public Radio, WNYC, and New York Public Media, WNET. Stephanie has served as a panelist and speaker for the American Alliance of Museums, the Brooklyn Community Foundation, the Lincoln Center Cultural Innovation Fund, the Institute for Museum and Library Services, and the National Endowment for the Arts, among other organizations, which doesn't spend as much money on culture as the city of New York does, we just found out tonight. Stephanie holds an MBA from Columbia Business School, a Master's in Public Administration and Economic Policy from Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, and her bachelor's degree from Binghamton University, which is part of the State University System of New York. She and her husband, Benjamin, are parents to three boys, ages 6, 9, and 13. A hearty welcome, Stephanie Hill Wilchworth, to Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much for having me. Well, before the show, we were talking about uh, your history. You're actually from Brooklyn, and you said you grew up in the museum. You, like, never left. I did. I grew up about 25 blocks away from Brooklyn Children's Museum. I grew up taking the Dean Street bus up to the museum. Um, and uh, What neighborhood did you grow up in Brooklyn? What? Um, well, it's I grew up on Bergen Street between 4th and 5th, and now it's considered Park Slope. But at the time I grew up there, it was really on the edge of Borham Hill. Um, and uh, it's really been a great blessing to come back to the museum where I grew up to work. Great. You've had quite a professional journey. You know, learning about your background, one could say that if you had any prior positions to prepare you for leading the Brooklyn Children's <laughs> Museum, it would be the things you've done. Sesame Workshop and then it is an institution like the Tenement Museum. Um, how did you get involved with Sesame Workshop? What and what did you do for them specifically? Yeah, well, um, so I uh, I should say I graduated from college and I always knew that I wanted to work in the arts, but I didn't have any particular talent. I knew I wasn't going to be an artist or a singer or an actor, um, and so it became really clear that my role would be in supporting artists and um, supporting arts organizations. Um, so I got a job as an administrative assistant at Lincoln Center in their fundraising department and um, ended up um, falling into public broadcasting, working for Channel 13 and WNYC, um, and then moved from there to Sesame Street, um, which is part of the public broadcasting ecosystem. Um, and Sesame Workshop is an international organization. They produce programs in um, countries around the world, um, early childhood programs. And uh, so was able to there um, get some experience both on the business development side of, of production and programming, but also in early childhood programming directly and project managing programs in, in Israel and in other countries, uh, in some in the United States. Um, and so then um, came went to the Tenement Museum and worked on the business side of the Tenement Museum. When did you start at the Tenement Museum? In uh, 2012, I went to the Tenement Museum. Um, I absolutely adore the Tenement Museum. It is one of my favorite, favorite places in the whole city. And that's a, a relatively young museum as museums go. Was it founded in about 2000? About 25 years ago. Yeah, it is a relatively, it was actually, I think, founded in 1998, but um, maybe didn't open until a few years later. Um, and the one of the really special things about the Tenement Museum is that every single person who works there, regardless of what your role is, also serves as an educator, giving tours um, to the public. So I was able to get this amazing experience giving tours, museum tours to the public, um, as well as uh, serving as their vice president. Um, but um, in 2015, uh, when the president job came open at Brooklyn Children's Museum, it was very, it was, it was sort of a, a kismet moment um, when my early childhood experience um, my project management experience, my experience with museums and um, education all kind of coalesced, um, as well as the fact that I was a mom. I was at that time a mom of a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a seven-year-old. All boys. All boys. Um, and, uh, and of course, um, coming back to the museum that um, played such an important role in my formative cultural experience. So it's almost like you've come. You came home. I came home. Yeah. I came home. Yeah, absolutely. I, 
this is something that some people who don't know of children's museums, and I have to confess I've never been to a children's museum, although now I've given the title of the show, I'm going to have to get my butt over to the Brooklyn Children's Museum. I'll give you advance notice of it. Um, what makes children's museums children's museums? How are they different from museums that we know as adults? Well, aside from the kind of obvious, the exhibits are designed for children, um, what I think really distinguishes children's museums is that the experience is child-led. Children can navigate their own cultural experience in a children's museum. So, you know, they are in the driver's seat. Um, they are telling their grown-ups where they want to go and expressing how they want to learn and constructing their own um, learning journey at, um, at a children's museum. The other thing that I think is important about children's museums is they are almost by definition community museums because families don't typically travel long, long distances to go to museums. They go to museums that are in their neighborhoods. And so children's museums are really serving the young children and families that are in their immediate geographic region. Hmm. We're going to talk about um, um, the history in the museum, uh, of the museum now. Um, for the uninitiated in the world of children's museums, like me, I never would have thought that a children's museum would have started in 1899. Because what you're Amazing, describing right? as, 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 a, as children being in the driver's seat, you know, uh, in Victorian times, mm -hmm. you would not even hear that. Well, you know, in 1899, when we were founded, the progressive education movement was also launching. And um, our museum, Brooklyn Children's Museum, was founded out of the progressive education movement. The idea that children could be in the driver's seat of their own learning, that um, experiential learning was important, that object-based learning could be important, and that um, touching and holding objects were, could be an important part of that learning experience. Um, and when did that movement take shape? Because I, I'd never heard of that before. I'm not that I'm, I'm not in the really field, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and you know, I think um, people think about Maria Montessori when they think about the progressive education movement. They think about the Reggio Emilia um, pedagogy. Um, all of these things fed into Brooklyn Children's Museum, but. You know, the, the museum also was really inspired by a couple of very important people. One was a man named William Goodyear, who was the chief curator at Brooklyn Museum. And he was traveling in Paris in the 1890s and saw these paper mache models and was really inspired by these to think about creating a museum that would be specifically for children. So he came back to Brooklyn, and he said to... Back to Brooklyn. He came back to Brooklyn from Paris, as we all end up doing eventually. And Being a Brooklyn native, I went back to Brooklyn after college. That's right. Um, and when he got back to Brooklyn and he was curator of Brooklyn Museum, he said to Brooklyn Museum, I think we should create a Brooklyn Children's Museum. And so out of Brooklyn Museum came Brooklyn Children's Museum. Um, the other thing that was important was the museum was cited in Crown Heights. It has always been cited in Crown Heights. Um, and it really has always been intended to serve the immediate um, six or seven neighborhoods of central Brooklyn, um, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brownsville, East New York, East Flatbush, Crown, uh, Prospect Leopards Gardens, Crown Heights, and Prospect Heights. Um, and so it's really been a community museum for an area of Brooklyn that has a very high population. 860,000 people live in those neighborhoods. That's 150,000 more people than Boston. Um, so it's been a very important community anchor and cultural touchstone in an area where there are not very many um, formal cultural institutions. And that was part of the vision and the mission when the, when the museum was started. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a sense that it was an important community anchor and cultural anchor for central Brooklyn. Is it uh, still at the same location as it was in 1899? Or? Yes, we have always been located wow. in Brower Park. Originally, we were located in two Victorian mansions. Um, the museum, uh, those mansions were destroyed in 1965, and a new building was built um, and uh, again was built again in 2008. Um, so the, the actual location of the museum has shifted a little bit in Brower Park, but always has been in Brower Park. Well, the, the ideas about designing a children's museum in the past decades must have been vastly different from when the museum was first started. 
What, yeah. What were some of the principles that went into designing and building the new the Yeah, new so, it, it, so um, just to say that originally in 1899, the museum was very much designed in the framework of other Victorian museums. So there were dioramas, there were vitrines, there were um, objects that were behind glass. Um, in 19- Not so much touch and feel, but look, don't touch. Yeah, it was sort of a, you know, and there was some, there was a lot of, there were a lot of touch objects too that came out of the collection. Um, but in 1965, the ethos had progressed even further, and the exhibits that were designed for the 1965 to 1975 buildings um, were much more hands-on, much more interactive, much more experiential. Um, and then again in 2008, when the exhibits were designed again, they were interactive, hands-on, experiential, and rooted in the Brooklyn community. So the exhibits today are really um, about Brooklyn, um, but about Brooklyn through play and through experiential learning. Oh. Uh, we're going to take a break, uh, and when we come back, we're going to speak with Stephanie about some of the exhibitions at the museum, the Brooklyn Children's Museum. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York, and my second guest on our show about museums in New York that you probably haven't been to, not yet anyway. Stephanie hill Wilchford is the executive director of the Brooklyn Children's Museum. Um, Stephanie, before we talk about things presently that people can see and kids can see at the museum, I wanted to ask you something about the neighborhood. Um, uh, Is there anything special about the museum's present location that you feel enhances the mission of the museum that was set up and even the experience of the visitors that um, the museum still still does for people who come? Yeah, I mean, the diversity of our visitors is a huge strength of our museum, um, in part because one of the things that visitors do at our museum is they play together. Um, you know, unlike at a museum where everybody is looking at the same piece of art but maybe not talking a whole lot, our museum is all about children interacting together and playing together. And so the diversity of our communities, the diversity of Brooklyn, um, is a real asset and, a, and a, uh, something that visitors say all the time is a real driver for them coming to the museum. And half of the museum's visitors do come from what you mentioned with the core neighborhoods, Bed-Stuy, Brownsville, Crown Heights, East Flatbush, East New York, Prospect Heights, and Prospect Lefferts Gardens. Oh, my mother lives in East New York right now, even though I grew up in oh. Manhattan Beach, <laughs> about the Brooklyn experience. Um, one question I have before we talk about things that people can see right now, does 
Does the museum have a permanent collection? If it does, what kind of things are in its permanent collection? We do. We have a 30,000 object permanent collection. About half of it is natural science specimens. Another half of it is cultural and ethnographic objects. Um, one of the interesting things about the collection is that it, it was largely put together um, by uh, donors from Brooklyn. So people, Brooklyn residents who collected things donated them to our museum. And then also it's full of deaccessioned objects from Brooklyn Museum. In the 1930s, Brooklyn Museum deaccessioned all of their natural science specimens because they decided that they would focus on art. And so we took oh, for, a lot sorry, of Sorry, for, for our listeners who don't know what deaccessioning is, it means that a museum decides that uh, things in its collection no longer fit the mission of the museum and they basically sell them off or get rid of them. That's or donate right. them to people, to uh, institutions who whose missions do uh, uh, meet, you know, that would serve the missions of the goals of the institution. Sometimes I say, um, you know, everybody has an aunt or an uncle in in their life who gives you the stuff that they don't want anymore and you you have to like take it and and incorporate it into your life um brooklyn museum is that aunt or uncle for us at brooklyn children's museum but it's been wonderful because what it means is that we have an incredible collection of authentic objects these are real things um, but they are not inherently valuable. So they can be in the hands of children. And our collection is more valuable than any collection in the city of New York when it is in the hands of children. So, you know, we have an incredible geology collection. We have um, a wonderful doll collection. Um, we have a very remarkable collection of taxidermy. Um, all kinds of things from all over the world. And that kids can... Feel and play yeah. with them. Yeah, well, I mean, not every, every, not every single thing can be handled, um, but almost everything can be used in some way in an educational program. Um, visitors to the museum today, uh, what will they find? What kind of exhibitions do you have on now? What kind of experiences? What kind of programs yeah. do, you, do you have at the so museum right now? We have four permanent exhibits. Um, one of them is called World Brooklyn. It is a child-sized streetscape of real Brooklyn businesses, replica bro- replicas of real Brooklyn businesses. Um, and uh, kids can learn about cultures of Brooklyn and cultures of the world um, by playing in these shops. Um, and so that is our one of our most core and one of our most popular exhibits. Sounds fun. I want to go. <laughs> yeah, it is fun. Um, we, um, we also have um, an exhibit right now, a temporary exhibit called Survival of the Slowest. Survival of the Slowest is about counterintuitive ap- adaptations, animals that are slow or small, and how they have survived in our fast-paced world. And currently, we have a sloth in residence, Roger. He is a three-toed sloth. He will be living in Brooklyn at Brooklyn Children's Museum from uh, October all the way through May. Um, so we encourage you to come visit Roger. He does actually come out of his enclosure and, um, and meet kids and meet families. Um, face to face, he is quite adorable. Does he like meeting? Does he does? He is he is absolutely delightful to have. Um, the exhibit has nineteen unique animal habitats, um, all of them designed around animals that have adapted uh, to overcome um, what might be a, a drawback of being slow or small. Hmm. What are some of the museum's notable programs and exhibitions that have been in the past that uh, aren't there anymore, but that have been part of, uh, of your work and of, and of the work of the museum? One of my favorites is an exhibit we did about two years ago called Block Party. Um, throughout a, a whole winter season, from about October all the way through uh, the spring, we had an indoor block party happening in our upstairs gallery. Um, it was inspired by the work of a photographer named Anderson Zaka, who lives in Crown Heights and has been documenting block parties all over the city for over a decade. We blew up giant versions of his photographs and created an immersive block party experience using those photographs. Um, It was beautiful art. His photographs are beautiful photographs, um, but also had lots of great interactive activities, including skelly and in and, um, you know, jump rope and hopscotch and all kinds of things that kids could do. That was one of my favorites. What kind of programming does, let's call it either co-programming or programming that the museum may have outside of the walls of the museum with other organizations or institutions? Do you ever 
take your show on the road to schools or to, to other places? So the most notable of these programs that we have is a free after-school program that we um, have at PS 189, which is a t- Title I public school in uh, central Brooklyn. It's on East New York Avenue in Brownsville. Um, and that um, and that program is happens every single day. We provide free custodial care and after school for children from 2.30 to 6 p.m. Um, every weekday and then on school holidays from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. and over the summer from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. It is museum-based programming, STEAM programming, um, that is science, technology, engineering, arts, and math programming. Um, it is a lot of fun uh, and it's wonderful work that helps a lot of parents. For you as the executive director now, you've been at the museum for four years, what are some of the favorite experiences that you have and some of the most inspiring things that, 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 that you're engaged with at the, with at the museum, Stephanie? Um, well, one of the things that really inspires me is we have three big building projects that we're working on right now. Um, we are building a 200-seat auditorium, which is the only family-focused theater of its kind in central Brooklyn. Um, we are building a branch of Brooklyn Public Library that will operate on our site and um, will be run in partnership with Brooklyn Public Library. And we're building a 20,000-square-foot outdoor earth science center uh, that is going to be all about the geology of Brooklyn and why Brooklyn has slopes and heights. Oh, wow. Um, and it's going to be an incredible outdoor play area, but also a real a deep learning experience about geology, hydrology, soil science, all kinds of earth science um, uh, I, um, concepts and ideas. And of course, all immersive for kids. All immersive, all for kids. Um, and you know, when kids are enjoying themselves, when kids are happy, the adults in their lives also are feeling very happy. How can people find out more about the Brooklyn Children's Museum and what and what in your work and uh, your current current stuff? Go to our website. It is www.brooklynkids.org. Every day we have a schedule up of all the programs we're offering, um, and every weekend we almost every weekend we have festivals and uh, weekend programs um, to keep your you and your kids in, entertained all day. Well, great. Well, thank you, Stephanie. This has been an illuminating and a fascinating conversation with the executive director of an important institution in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Children's Museum. Um, You've been listening to Rediscovering New York, episode 43, uh, museums that you probably haven't been to, not yet, but hopefully will in the future. Uh, If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, uh, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. That's Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman. I'm a real estate agent in Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to work with passion as well as with the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned next at 8 p.m. right here on Talk Radio NYC for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc.
I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 